0: Skagit Talks is supported by the Associated Students of Skagit Valley College, representing students and organizing activities throughout the school year. Find out more at ASSVC.com.
1: If you've enjoyed Skagit Talks, we need your donation today. Please go to ksvr.org and press the Donate button. Thank you. Today is a conversation with Viva Farms' Catherine Mervold, Marketing and Education Assistant, and Anna Chotson, Business and Marketing Manager. They talk about the upcoming Community Supported Agriculture Boxes subscription. From the Northwest News Network, Clark County measles outbreak is over. Referendum filed to overturn affirmative action measure. From the Washington News Service, families joined Governor Jay Inslee for signing of wrongful death reform. All this and more on today's edition now Viva Farms CSA boxes.
2: This is Anne Bodel Nash for Skagit Talks. Have you wondered what the phrase CSA means? Have you heard of Viva Farms? Well please welcome my guests, Catherine Mirvold and Anna Chotzen, as we talk about both of these things. They are things, they are words that you will hear in the Skagit Valley quite frequently. So welcome Catherine and Anna to the studio. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You bet. Let's talk um, first about a description of Viva Farms. What is Viva Farms?
3: Viva Farms is a farm business incubator program. So we support beginning farmers to start businesses and provide them with all of the resources that we see as essential to starting a farm business. So those include training in a wide variety of topics as well as access to land, and we offer certified organic farmland here in the Valley as well as access to infrastructure and equipment, technical assistance in various ways, access to markets and marketing, and finally access to capital assistance to help with getting loans and getting financing to support their businesses. And so we do all that to support our beginning farmers here in the Valley.
2: It sounds very vertically integrated. I don't yeah. know if it's a phrase that gets used much with Viva Farms, but it's remarkable.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's one that's one way to put it. I think our effort really is to lower the barriers to entry, to starting a farm business. And as many of you know, I'm sure starting a farm can require a lot of capital input up front, and a lot of beginning farmers don't have that. And so what we try to do is provide all of the resources that they can use at the beginning to develop their business so that as they grow and expand, they can then acquire the different resources that they need to be successful
2: wonderful so Katherine and Anna how are you connected with Viva Farms are you farmers Um, my role at Viva is the marketing
4: and education assistant so um, I do have a background in farming and also in teaching Spanish and English and all of our training programs are bilingual Um, we do simultaneous translation of our classes and workshops Um, with uh, Spanish translation. And so my role is in, I, I'm involved in helping teach the farm practicum, which is at the core of our training. It's an eight month program um, that goes through a whole farm season. So we have a cohort of students who start in spring. We actually just started last week and we'll be going through November. And we, we teach them everything from you know seed germination to um, all aspects of production through the farm season. And as that winds down in fall, we transition to teach them um, all of the fundamentals of uh, marketing, business, running a a farm uh, business. And so I'm involved in that program, Anna as well, um, with teaching the business aspects. And then my other role is helping in our sales program, um, helping the farmers find new markets and sell their produce.
2: So maybe this leads me to the CSA program, unless there's something else you'd like to add. Catherine, did you have something?
4: (laughs) Well, I just was going to give Anna
2: the opportunity to introduce herself. Anna, tell me about you.
3: Yeah, for sure. I work really closely with Catherine in a lot of different ways. Primarily my two main areas of focus at Viva are running our sales program, which includes the CSA, which we'll talk about here in a minute, as well as our wholesale program. We deliver a couple times a week down to Seattle and King County widely. Um, as well as some to Bellingham and Whatcom counties. And the sales program and our ability to market our farmers' products is a very – it's really key to our programming because it allows farmers to have access to markets in their first few years of being in business, which is really exciting. So Katie – Catherine and I, (laughs) also known as Katie, work closely on that. And then I also support farmers in financial planning and helping them develop – their businesses and scale up as is appropriate to their particular business plan.
2: One of the first things that's come to my mind as you're talking about this is whether there's um, cooperative ownership of uh, farm products in the beginning that are then marketed to benefit all or is it always individualized with individual uh, individuals in the cohort being responsible for their own plot of land and speak to that a
5: little bit
3: yeah that's an interesting question. Every farm on site at Viva is an independent farm business independently owned and operated, and they each farm business leases land from Viva, so each farm runs its operation independently, chooses how it wants to market its product, what products it wants to grow, um, et cetera, et cetera, whether it wants to be more mechanized or less mechanized, et cetera. And then based on what farmers choose to grow, we as Viva Farms, in particular as the sales staff, work to market that product um, to our different customers. And so it's not – technically speaking, it's not cooperatively owned at all, but we do aggregate all the farmers' product and then sell it on behalf of everyone.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
4: And in terms of the cohort of students on the practicum plot, that operates as um, like a practice farm business on site. So we all farm it together, but we run it as if it were a a real farm. So it's field-scale agriculture. We teach farming um, the way that we would – want them to be farming once they, if they were to join the incubator program. So we teach them about organic certification and just the different types of requirements by doing it on an actual practice farm. And then the products that we grow on the farm, um, one of the things that we do with them is we channel them towards our CSA program. So that is one way to practice that business aspect of it. Um, Yeah.
2: Wonderful. All right. Let's talk about CSAs for a minute. How about starting with what do those letters stand for?
4: Sure. Um, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And um, basically what that means is that the community is supporting the farmer um, by sharing some of the upfront risk when they start the season. So by purchasing a CSA share, you're basically paying in advance for produce that you'll then get delivered to you throughout the season once harvest begins. And farmers are able to use that capital at the beginning to um, get their business going at the beginning of the season. It helps with buying seed or seed uh, equipment like you know drip irrigation, anything that they need to get the season going. Um, and then, like I said, later, the in, in return for that the people who've purchased those shares will get a weekly box of farm fresh produce, um, and it really helps beginning farmers who have um, maybe less capital to work with and and really need that at the
2: beginning of the season. How many CSA shares, if that's the thing to call it, are you hoping to sell this year?
3: That is the thing to call it, by the way. <laughs> it is a CSA share, and we're hoping to get somewhere between two hundred and thirty and two hundred and fifty mm-hmm. this year. That's up from about one hundred and thirty last year 150 so, so not quite doubling yeah so we're, we're definitely impressive. expanding significantly which is really exciting and we're really trying to make it accessible to everybody in the community so i hope we'll get a chance to talk about the specifics of how we're doing that
2: sure and could we talk about price point for sure
3: and this might be a good chance to talk about this program so the the price point, if you're a full price paying customer in Skagit, because we also do deliver in King County, for a small share, which is, I'd say it comfortably feeds, even generously feeds to adults for a week, is $20 per box. So for the 14-week season, that's $280. And you do pay for the 14 weeks up front because of the reasons that Catherine just described. And then for the large box, which is intended for three to four adults in a household That is $35 per box or $490 for the 14-week season.
2: And what kind of variety of, of products will be in a box like that?
4: Well, one of the things that makes our CSA unique is that we're able to source from all of the different farmers on site, so it's a wide variety of products, and it just depends on the season as things become available. But typically, um, typically subscribers could expect between seven and ten different types of products in a box, and um, when berries are in season, they'll get berries every week. We typically do some kind of greens, salad greens, or um, you know, braising greens. We'll do uh, onions, garlic, some kind of allium, and herbs. And then beyond that, it rotates just depending on what comes into season. So it could be zucchini, peppers later in the year. um, And then as we move into fall, we will focus on cooler weather crops.
2: Mm -hmm. And can people request or uh, de-request any particular products? Like if they know they'll never eat zucchini, which I like, but not everybody maybe does.
3: Yeah, it's a good question, and we definitely get that question a lot. And in general, (laughs) no, they can't choose, and that's really intentional because part of the model of the CSA is that we want to make the local produce that is being produced accessible to the community and celebrate what farmers are choosing to grow and also what this region supports well. And so generally speaking, we don't really make accommodations for choices, of course, there are exceptions, but I'll just leave it at that. That no, and it's, but we do include a lot of recipes with each box and cooking tips and storage tips and any way that we can possibly assist in the kitchen when people aren't familiar with a particular item. Right. And also, just to
4: that point, um, we do make an effort to have a lot of variety in the boxes. So, you know, we would never be putting beets in the every box for 14 weeks in a row. We try to make sure because we have so much to work with that what people are getting um, has as much variety as we are able to
2: offer them each week. And are you limited to fruits and vegetables or do you branch off into meat and poultry, eggs, any of that?
3: Currently, we just do fruits and vegetables. We do also have a bread share that comes from a local baker up in Bellingham, Raven Breads. And beyond that, we are just doing fruits and veggies at this point in time, although we're potentially exploring ways to include proteins going forward. So it could even be as soon as our fall CSA, but perhaps next year.
2: Mm -hmm. And going back to the bread, is the bread a separate share or is it somewhat included?
3: It's a separate share. Yeah. So you pay, it's $8 per loaf and you pay again for the 14 weeks. So that's $112 if I did my math correctly. And... It's delicious bread. It's all made by local grains produced here in the valley or produced elsewhere but milled here in the valley. So the, the baker there is really committed to local bread production as well.
2: So what do you say to the people that might say, well, why would I buy a CSA? I can buy these products for less maybe at the farmer's – well, maybe not farmer's market. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's mm-hmm. notoriously not always the least expensive place. But you know what I'm saying. CSA is a bit of an investment.
4: It is, but it, it it does end up being a good deal when you compare what's in the box to what you would spend on comparable local organic produce um, at the markets. Uh, so what you end up getting, um, what we, we think it is a good value financially, but also um, you're also supporting local farmers, so you're getting that on top of it. And then for people who have a hard time with the price point, we also do have a subsidy that's um, funded by USDA Finney grant. So we're able to offer the boxes at 50% cost to um, people who receive EBT SNAP benefits. So anybody who is SNAP eligible is able to get those boxes for what comes out to $10 a week.
2: Wow, that's wonderful. So how does one contact you if they're interested?
3: Various ways. The easiest is probably to go to our website, vivafarms.org. And from there, we have a produce tab which will take you directly to our CSA page that has all of this information and more, including detailed information on the program that Katie just described for SNAP recipients. SNAP, for anybody who's not familiar, is the program that formerly was food stamps, mm-hmm. so anybody who has the food assistance. But that's the that's the easiest way, and then our phone number and email are oh, on yeah. the website. Good. And
2: how about delivery locations?
3: Delivery locations, we have throughout Skagit. We have... Two in Mount Vernon, Anacortes, Cedar Woolley. Potentially, we're going up to Concrete this year, so that'll be new for us, going upriver, which is really great and exciting. And we have also Viva Farms.
2: Are things delivered to a central site, and then people have to come and pick up their boxes? Yeah,
3: and from the website, you can go and you can select the location that's closest to your address. Uh We also have Seattle pickup sites, but um, we are not currently
2: offering the SNAP subsidy down there. Okay. Anything else you'd like to share briefly? It'd be great to have you back another time and discuss the larger concept of how uh, new farmers acquire land because I think that's a whole other problem.
3: Mm -hmm. For sure it is, and we have lots to say about it. Mm -hmm. I would just really encourage folks who are interested in experimenting or experimenting with local eating and local produce or just interested in a really affordable, accessible way to get nourishing food to their families to consider this program.
2: All right. Well, I thank you both, Catherine Mirvold and Anna Chotzen. Oh, ladies, sometimes names. <clears throat> I'm so glad you've come in today and, and shared some information about the CSA program through Viva Farms. I encourage you to come back another time and let us know how it's going this year. And I just want to say you could put beets in my box any day. <laughs> I am a fan. <laughs> thank you for having us. Thanks so much. You're so welcome. And Bodel Nash for Skagit Talks.
1: If you enjoyed this program, We need your donation today. Just go to ksvr.org and press the Donate button. Thank you. And now, regional news from the Northwest News Network. While measles outbreaks continue in cities around the country, the one in Portland, Vancouver area has now officially ended. Christian Voden-Wenzel reports from Oregon Public Broadcasting. Forty-two days since the last case of measles ended in Clark County, Washington, that's two incubation periods, and that's the yardstick for announcing an end. At final count, there were 71 cases, not 73, as previously reported. That's because two people contracted the disease here, but flew to Georgia, where they were actually confirmed. The big question is, why did this outbreak end so quickly, compared to those in New York, Michigan, and California? Clark County Public Health Officer Dr. Alan Melnick isn't sure.
0: There are so many variables. It's, you know, the people affected, the density, you know, how people get around there, Um, And you have the environment that differs from place to place.
1: He's working on a study with the CDC that might shed light on the question in the future. I'm Christian Fodenvansel reporting. Affirmative action opponents have filed a referendum to overturn Initiative 1000. Lawmakers passed the initiative to the legislature Sunday night before they adjourned. It would once again allow affirmative action in state employment, contracting, and education. Olympia correspondent Austin Jenkins reports.
4: After Sunday's vote in the House and Senate, I-1000 opponents demonstrated in the Capitol Rotunda.
5: Shame on you!
4: On, you! on Monday morning, one of the participants, Khan Chu, filed the paperwork for a voter referendum. Chu is a member of Washington Asians for Equality, a group that argues affirmative action would legalize racial discrimination and penalize, quote, hardworking Asians.
6: My grandfather, he was trying to hard to get by without
2: job right? And now my kid is able to attend
6: Northwestern University.
4: Chu and his fellow I-1000 opponents have until late July to collect nearly 130,000 signatures to qualify for the November ballot. In a statement, Democratic State Senator Joe Nguyen says supporters of I-1000 are seeking opportunity for everyone and are ready to fight, quote, a campaign of misinformation and fear. I'm Austin Jenkins in Olympia. Now this
1: story from the Washington News Service. Families join Governor Jay Inslee's side as he signed legislation to reform wrongful death lawsuits. Betsy Charnis has more.
5: Governor Jay Inslee signs a bill to ensure that parents of adult children get justice in wrongful death cases. He'll be joined by families who have fought for this change for years. Senate Bill 5163 passed in the legislature this month. It will allow parents of people 18 and older to sue accountable parties for the negligent deaths of their children. Rhonda Ellis, who lost her son, daughter-in-law, and grandson when a bridge collapsed in 2015, says families came together and worked through grief year after year to get this law passed. We worked so hard. We stood together. We supported each other. We didn't leave each other's sides. We took
2: texts in the middle of the night. We all cried together. We have all been a huge team, and in that, I really believe the bill passed because we stood with it and we were persistent.
5: The law also ensures parents living outside of Washington have the right to sue for wrongful death of an adult child killed in the state. Groups representing city and county governments opposed to the bill say they would have to pay most of the damages, even if they were found 1% liable in a case. Deanna Hogue lost her 19-year-old son, who was crushed in an auger at a summer job in 2014. The company he worked for pleaded guilty in a criminal case, but the Hogs couldn't file a wrongful death suit because their son wasn't financially dependent on them. She says a Washington man who recently lost his son has thanked her for this new law. His
2: 19-year-old son was negligently killed, and I already feel like it's benefiting parents who can now hold people accountable for the death of their child.
5: Ellis hopes no more families experience tragedy, but she's happy to know that they can now seek justice.
2: If there is somebody who faces what I faced and everyone else has faced, they will have a voice and in their grief they will be
5: heard instead of silenced. The Washington State Association for Justice has led the charge to get this law passed for years in Olympia. The group's president, Ann Rosado, says it rights a horrible wrong and that the state will no longer discriminate against families who suffer the ultimate loss. This is Betsy Charnas with Skagit Talks.
0: Here's the national news. The Public News Service Daily Newscast for Tuesday, April the 30th, 2019. I'm Mike Clifford. Boeing defends decisions made concerning its 737 MAX aircraft. Also on the Tuesday rundown, a parental consent abortion bill stalls in the Sunshine State. Plus, a new study finds that cell phones that touch your body can greatly exceed safety limits. First, here's our top story. Boeing went on the record concerning its 737 MAX aircraft on Monday, CNBC reporting. Boeing said it did not intentionally or otherwise deactivate the disagree alert on its 737 MAX jets. They add the statement comes in response to reports that Boeing failed to tell Southwest Airlines and the FAA that the safety feature had been deactivated before two fatal crashes. CNBC notes the company said they included the disagree alert as a standard feature on the MAX, although the alert has not been considered a safety feature on airplanes and is not necessary for the safe operation of the aircraft. In the final week of Florida's legislative session, Trammell Gomes tells us it appears a bill has stalled that would have required minors to get
6: parental consent before having an abortion. Florida law currently requires parents to be notified if their daughters are planning to have abortions. But the bill, which already passed the House, goes further by requiring parental consent. The bill includes exemptions for situations such as minors who have health emergencies or who already have children. However, opponents such as Kimberly Scott with the Florida Alliance for Planned Parenthood affiliates says the policy would be a safety risk and keep vulnerable teens from accessing timely medical care.
3: Especially for
2: those that might be abused or neglected or are
3: homeless or foster youth.
6: Supporters claim parents have a unique perspective to advise a child. While the Republican-led House voted 69-44, to largely along party lines for the bill, the Senate version still has two committee stops and is one vote shy of the required supermajority to send the bill directly to the Senate floor for a vote. And brain science can help explain why many people with serious
0: addictions are so out of control. Dan Hyman reports why many addicts also have trauma in their history.
7: Jessica Holton is a licensed clinical social worker and addiction specialist teaching in Charleston this week. She says in her practice, almost all the addicts have trauma in their background as well as substance abuse disorder. Holton says this is because both addiction and trauma take over the limbic system, the animal part of the brain, bypassing the rational decision-making part.
4: We often think that it's a choice, a moral failure, but really the science shows that the survival part of the brain, the limbic system, actually gets hijacked for those who have a
3: true addiction.
7: Addicts sometimes say it's as if they've lost control of their own hands. Holden describes that as a symptom. Should be in Charleston for the spring conference of the National Association of Social Workers West Virginia. That conference starts Wednesday. It's the largest event of its kind in the country. This year's schedule also includes discussions of foster care and social work in the schools.
0: Another new report finds increased flooding from climate change and racial disparities in water quality are some of the most urgent environmental issues facing states like North Carolina. More on the story from Nadia Romligon.
2: Data from the report shows the billion-dollar costs in damage from flooding, storm surges, and high winds to North Carolina's coastal communities have skyrocketed in the past five years. Julie DeMeester studies floodplains and storm resiliency. She says state and local governments are now focusing on climate change resiliency by buying out vulnerable flood prone land and buffering coastlines to lessen the impact of severe storms.
5: And once you see what is flooded repeatedly, you can go in and say what's
4: vulnerable. What I like to go in thinking about is where can we do the best protection and restoration work to try and help communities that might experience flooding in the future.
2: The report also found that people of color in North Carolina, particularly Black and Native American residents, are dying at younger ages compared with white residents. Disparities in water quality is emerging as a key contributor to health declines in these
0: communities. Finally, Suzanne Potter tells us public health groups are calling for a nationwide recall on some cell phones that after a new study showed some units, when pressed up against the body, emit 11 times more radiation than FCC safety limits allow.
2: A study done by a professor emeritus of electrical engineering from the University of Utah analyzed data from the French government, which tested 450 phones and found that 9 out of 10 violated safety limits when they touched the body. Dr. Deborah Davis with the Environmental Health Trust says she thinks the U.S. government guidelines themselves are old and need to be updated. The United States is far behind in testing phones, and we believe the reasons for that have to do with the fact that the FCC is currently being run by former heads of the cell phone industry. Cell phones would be illegal if they were
5: tested in the way that they are used.
2: The study found that the radiation is within the safety limits as long as people use hands-free devices and store them away from their body.
0: The U.S. National Technology Program found large doses of cell phone radiation led to brain and heart tumors in rats. And the World Health Organization has called cell phone radiation a human carcinogen. I'm Mike Clifford. Thanks for news and cruising with Public News Service. We are member and listener supported, and you will find us online at at publicnewsservice.org. Thanks for listening to today's edition, produced
1: by Joseph C. McGuire and edited by Jay Charles. You've been listening to Skagit Talks, the community information and news program on KSVR, Skagit Community Radio.
0: Promoting civic participation... Making Contact is a program that reviews critical social and environmental issues, showcasing solutions in order to inform and inspire audiences to action. Making Contact is on every Wednesday at 1 p.m. on Skagit Community Radio.